0: Welcome to the Historical Materialism podcast, episode three on tar sands. Today, we're talking about the article by Tyler McCreary called Crisis in the Tar Sands, Fossil Capitalism and the Future of the Alberta Hydrocarbon Economy. My name is Lucas Lotus.
1: And I'm Ashok Kumar. And this is uh, this podcast is part of Historical Materialism, which is a you know, started off as an academic journal, but has a book series, this podcast, of course, but also uh, conferences around the world, including our a, a big sort of central co- uh, conference in usually in the autumn uh, in London. And this year, after a few years of a hiatus, uh, we're having the HM conference in London. It's back. 10th to the 13th of November. It's under the kind of title of Facing the Abyss, Epoch of Permanent War and Counter Revolution. Uh, and the abstract for that deadline for the abstracts are uh, is July 25th. So we encourage you to submit and attend. The podcast
0: is basically a chance for us to do a deeper dive into one particular article from each issue of the journals. So we very much encourage listeners to access the paper. The the paper we're talking about today will be made available open access, so you're free to download and, and read it. We've done previous episodes on political Marxism and the economics of imperialism. We encourage you to check out those episodes, and we hope you enjoy this one. So with us today, we have Tyler McCreary, who is Assistant Professor in Geography at Florida State University, and who's written and published widely on the political economy of fossil fuels, natural resources and and so on. And so we're really excited to to have this conversation today particularly about the tar sands in Canada and the political economy of of that industry or that sector. So, yeah, if you maybe if you want to just start off saying kind of just outlining what is the kind of general argument, what are the kind of contours of the paper, what's what's it all about?
2: Yeah, so just, just to start, I, I, I want to thank you for, for inviting me here and having this conversation. Uh, obviously, a longtime fan of historical materialism, the practice intellectually and, and the journal specifically. So it's great to be able to have this conversation. The article itself focuses on sort of a, a conjunctural analysis. Of production in uh, the Canadian tar sands, one of the major unconventional sources of fossil fuels in in the world, and uh, particularly bitumen, an oil equivalent. And I sort of argue that th- there are five tensions or, or conjunctures that we need to understand to understand the possibilities and contradictions that might be shaping sense development. And at their base, I argue, two have been really dominant in the conversation around pipelines and infrastructure, around questions of indigenous peoples and their rights. But I argue that the Marxist tradition gives us also a broader set of considerations that we need to bring to the conversation around the rentier's dilemma, around questions of decarbonization and the transitions in the fossil economy, and then finally thinking around automation and questions of automation. Uh, And ultimately, I argue that conversations around the tar sands in Canada have been overly dominated by a kind of left moralism that talks about them in terms of, of their environmental weight without engaging questions of political economy. And this is sort of left economics as the domain of conservative or liberal solutions. And I think this is unfortunate because a deeper reading of the political economy shows a lot of tensions and contradictions that can inform a critical reading of the tar sands and why it's not desirable, not only for environmental reasons, but also undesirable as a trajectory of development in terms of its political economy.
1: You focus and you just mentioned um, on this idea of the sort of rentier dilemma. Can you sort of explain that more broadly, but also within the specific context of of the tar sands?
2: This is kind of uh, a, a conventional analytic that people have brought forward, maybe for almost a half century now, and sort of thinking about why decolonial states have not been able to mobilize their resources to direct other pathways of development. Um, And part of it is that states don't actually control their resources within the capitalist economy, but are reliant on cycles of investment to mobilize resources. And you're caught in this kind of dilemma where within a global production system, your choices or options are to raise raise rents to realize better revenue, but then become less competitive uh, in a global investment market, or to conversely lower rents to attract investment, but then reduce the amount of revenue. And it kind of creates this dilemma where if you try to realize a greater percentage of the revenue from your resources, you end up being a site of divest. And this is you know, a very kind of basic uh, principle that while the public may claim ownership or a state may claim ownership of the resources, the dynamic of global capitalism determine who or where gets resource investment and the kind of geography that unfolds. Specifically to thinking about it in the tar sands, I think that this is a huge piece of the puzzle in terms of understanding what's actually unfolding in terms of development and is often occluded from the conversation when it's only posed on environmental terms
0: you say as well in the paper or you kind of argue for the need for moving from thinking about this primarily in terms of thinking about it in terms of consumption and then to thinking about production could you say how that fits in with with that because a lot of the focus is around consumption is around kind of environmentalism or environmentalist movements maybe focusing on consumption and then you say we need to think more about the production of the fossil fuels how does that fit in with the kind of rentier dilemma The rentier's dilemma really does kind of hinge on on questions of production
2: and how you extract rent from, because these are the two, you know, kind of major drivers of how you make money production and rent. So it brings us back to that kind of domain as opposed to like looking at the other side of the markets and consumptive practices. I think a lot of, of environmentalism has really been dominated by consumer politics, but even radical Marxist approaches to it, like Andreas Malm's otherwise brilliant analysis on how to blow up a pipeline is really focused on, on this kind of lifestyle, like going after suburban SUVs the need to like have limitations on, on the uber-rich and their yachts, all of which I agree. I, I don't think that we need to have giant fleets of yachts or spaceships for the for the rich. And I think that can be rhetorically useful to bring forward. But I think that continues to take us away from the actual sites of production. And I think the rentier's dilemma lies in the contradictions and, and the tensions that inform production itself. And we need to have conversations about fossil capitalism that look at some of those tensions in the sites where the fossil fuels are coming from, rather than simply looking at where they're consumed.
1: Um, on this question, I get the in the mom text. Where he's talking about SUVs, and and that makes sense that, that that would be in the sort of sphere of consumption or the point of consumption. Would you also consider pipeline infrastructure and that kind of focus a sphere of consumption? Wouldn't that be more along the sort of supply? And would that be not to be technical a kind of sphere of of production? But also, you you have a kind of critique of where this this kind of politics fits in within indigenous politics, which is like it's been a big force, at least in the North American context of fighting these pipelines and fighting this kind of capital. Would you consider that also within the sphere of consumption? Or would it be a would it be a kind of would it still be because you do have a critique of that? I guess I'm asking, could you articulate the critique of that kind of politics?
2: Within the tradition of geography Um, that I situate myself following people like David Harvey. I would say fixed capital and infrastructure is part of the infrastructures of production. So pipelines are part of controlling the access to markets is part of the production process. That said, I think that focusing only on pipelines has obscured other points in the kind of broader system of, of production And it's easy if you only focus on transportation to lose the dynamics of production that occur in the sites of extraction themselves. So while pipelines are part of the uh, networks of extraction to read pipelines alone um, or interpret the politics through pipelines alone has the same kind of problem as focusing on consumption that you don't you don't see what's happening in in the kind of productive you don't see the contradictions and the tensions you only see this little piece and I similarly think indigenous politics and you know I'll be clear that I have like a great deal of sympathy and think indigenous struggles are a key part uh, of struggles against capitalism. But I think focusing only on the kind of original moment of dispossession uh, has a kind of limit in terms of its political resonance, its ability to see beyond a specific relation to kind of understand the totality of tensions that are coming together. And I strongly believe that, you know, we need to pay attention to pipelines. We need to pay attention to indigenous politics. But paying attention to only these pieces, we need to pay attention to consumption, doesn't allow us to understand the totality of
0: the kind of global production of fossil fuels. Would you say that it's those are relevant insofar as they're processes of exploitation, but that kind of when we think of them beyond that, is it about the historical injustice? if it's not about the initial dispossession? In what sense does it kind of contribute, if we think about it, processes or of emancipation or whatever, as being the, the thing we want? So I, I'm going to suggest
2: that uh, in terms of specifically indigenous politics, there's kind of two pieces. One, from a kind of uh, political economy, I think it's important to recognize. Accumulation by dispossession is not, I, I invoked original, obviously going back to the Texts. I think David Harvey usefully reformulates it as uh, accumulation by dispossession, which allows us to recognize its contemporariness. And its contemporariness applies even to Indigenous relations. Indigenous people still exist. They're still contesting their dispossession. And in order for the kind of territoriality of uh, capital extraction to be imposed, that dispossession has to be reinscribed. So one of the contests against this production is around its actual geography, the ability to inscribe this geography of extraction on top of, of uh, indigenous connections to place. And indigenous people continue to challenge that. Now, the offer that they have is, is dual. One is that that original dispossession is necessary as a territorial condition for extraction. So they're challenging one of the conditions of extraction, but they're also in doing so, putting forward the possibilities of other ways of life that I think have an ideological role in, in struggles and imaginations of what emancipation means. So I think it's it's both that. But I. I would say that there's a kind of material limit to a politics that is only focused on the question of dispossession in the sense that you're looking at 4% of the population and there's a large number of people who are being exploited, marginalized in the capitalist economy who are not Indigenous. And we need to have a politics that speaks to them as well. And I think that uh, while Indigenous emancipation is key, it's not the only aspect of liberation that we're looking for.
0: I was wondering if you could say more because in the paper you very nicely tease out some of the tensions and and conflicts and also overlaps between indigenous struggles and labor struggles and the kind of way in which that's changing as well with the tar sands and and how Investments in incre- increasing labor productivity also means something for the kind of politics of what's going on here in terms of even electoral yeah. politics. Could you even just explain what is the kind of landscape of that? What does that look like? What is the kind of relationship between indigenous struggles, uh, labor unions or trade unions and so on? It's a complicated terrain on one's kind of simple gloss of it.
2: Indigenous struggles have on some level been challenging territorial dispossession where unions have been struggling, industrial unions uh, in the extractive sectors, struggling to improve conditions, improve wages for workers within the sectors premised on this dispossession. So uh, there's a kind of tension because indigenous challenges challenge the very industry and its conditions of existence, whereas labor struggles are trying to improve conditions within it, which has historically put indigenous and labor struggles at a kind of loggerheads. There's been more complicated terrain that's emerged in part because one of the ways that industry has sought to ameliorate Indigenous conflicts is through the provision of what are typically called impact benefit agreements that provide things like employment guarantees, opportunities to participate in project benefits, revenue streams, to create community development funds, uh, compensation for ecological damages to help bring Indigenous people into the industry. This has created a new set of conflicts with labor. Unions because job guarantees then begin to introduce forms of indigenous employment that trump older kind of seniority rights and lead to uh, tensions between indigenous and primarily white workers within unions. And all of this is being exacerbated or complicated, as I suggest in the paper, by emerging geographies of automation where we're starting to see an offset of employment away from the rural areas where industrial workers from indigenous and white backgrounds work towards newer tech solutions. So automated drones and supervision, automated trucking. And this moves kind of technological expertise the labor relations to urban environments and to high-tech sectors, which have really high skill requirements for entry that are not typically accessible to the historic workforces, either indigenous or white, that are working in the tar sands. So one of the things I suggest is that automation is decreasing employment opportunities for traditional workers and exacerbating, on one hand, conflicts as jobs decrease between white and indigenous workers fighting for the same, although decreasing jobs. And on the other hand, is creating these kind of new possibilities politically as the primary beneficiaries of development in terms of how it being exploited by capitalism is being a beneficiary. People that had those jobs are being stripped of of the benefits of that industry.
1: Yeah, on this point, I kind of I want to quote directly from your paper. Um, you say in a quote, uh, "There's a there's thus a contradictory tendency within contemporary ca- fossil capitalism to render its most supportive constituencies superfluous." So here you're talking about this automation process is obviously this you know core constituency that's backing it is rendered superfluous through the process of automation. And and then you continue, while it is difficult to discern where the political loyalties of the abject former worker will go, it seems certain the contemporary moment presents tremendous possibilities for political realignments. So you leave it kind of a little bit ambiguous. You don't take a position on which way they'll go, but you say there's opportunities. And so we're wondering if you could take this opportunity to tell us where you think, which which way, which direction, political direction, do you think this population of former workers in the sector will go?
2: I mean i think there's a tremendous and to be kind of frank terrifying possibility that they can go to the far right and i think part of what motivated me to write the paper initially is that potentiality i think that i come from a lot of background working in solidarity with indigenous struggles i think it's really important to our visions of liberation as i said before but i'm terrified by the growth of white, uh, of open kind of white supremacist politics. And I think the appeals of the far right to disaffected workers and alienated white folks are real. And I think in the absence of organizing on the left to speak to those populations, organizing on the right can speak to those populations. And I, I think that we need to be countering that. And I do think there is some hope for all my critiques of moderate social democrats in the crisis of the middle of the last decade alberta which is uh, comparable to a kind of texas of the north a deeply conservative political sphere uh, elected the social democrats out of nowhere now it was a little bit of a blip it was in the crisis in the context of an economic crisis where they blamed the ruling conservatives but they swung left or center anyway, and then the kind of centrist social Democrats weren't able to resolve any of the contradictions of the fossil economy, and they swung back conservative. But I think the fact that that swing even happened shows that there is a lot more dynamism and opening than is conventionally said. And I think that there is this sort of possibility that disaffected people could go different directions. But I think the left needs to do a better job of
0: speaking to those folks. How is the left talking about mobilizing around this at the moment? The radical left uh, in Canada, I think,
2: doesn't have a lot of prescriptions in in these spaces. And I think there is some really good work that is starting to think about, you know, the racial investments uh, of whiteness and, and critically like kind of interrogate that. But on the
0: ground, organizing amongst these communities has been lacking. I think, an undercurrent in the paper and something that's interesting for the for all of us to think about more in the context of this paper is that, you know, not to say that we're not interested in Canada or that we don't think that you know, the, the kind of <laughs> domestic politics of Canada are important, but one of the things that I think is really exciting and, quite frankly, really well done in the paper is precisely how you tease out some of the connections and the larger conjunctures that this speaks to and the way in which it fits in with the kind of Global political economy or international political economy of the hydrocarbons. So, could you say something about what are the kind of similarities and differences between, for example, and you talk about this in the paper, but if somebody hadn't read the paper, um, the difference between the tar sand economy in in Canada, for example, and the shale gas economy in the U.S. or even in parts of Europe, what are the kind of in terms of the political economy of it and the and the structure of it? W- how are they similar and how are they different? Well, I think that. The... You know, they're
2: similar in the fact that they're both unconventionals, um, which means that they develop on different, relying on different technologies and, and timelines than conventionals. Um, one of the ways that they're different is they're different unconventionals. So the time to production from investment in shale gas is our mu- or shale is much faster than tar sand. So you can have a return on investment or into production, I think two years uh, on a shale project. And then in the tar sands, it's in, uh, quite slow in comparison. So four to 10 years, a kind of lag time. So, you know, for someone that wants to say, well, don't we need the tar sands to resolve the Ukraine crisis? If they were to amp up production in the tar sands somewhere between half and a decade from now, There would be an increase in production, which would also rely on someone having built some pipelines, which would also take probably a decade. And then it would come into the economy and probably uh, by that time, the hopefully conflict in Ukraine would no longer be a primary issue. So there's not this kind of dynamic response. You know, often we have this kind of imagination of markets as abstract uh, price signals that absence their materiality, but these production processes actually take time. Um, they need to be materially implemented in the world. And tire science production in particular is slow and is ineffective in responding to the kind of dynamics uh, of global market activity, particularly compared to conventionals or other unconventionals like shale that have quicker response times and also lower investment costs.
1: Yeah, I guess on that question of... Ukraine, and um, we see that, that actually the effects of Ukraine really, obviously, across the world for a number of reasons. Energy is quite part of it, but obviously, grain stores. Look at what's happening in Sri Lanka, for example. Um, returning to Canada on this auspicious Canada Day, you know, since you wrote the article, you know, the Ukraine wars you know, kicked off, you have um, a kind of consumer energy crisis that's emerged. So kind of building on what you've just suggested, but how does the war in Ukraine and the prices affect your argument? And, you know, what role, I guess you said in the short term, it's a greater investment. So it may not have a short term effect, but what do you think the long term effects will be in terms of prices, production, consolidation for Canadian tar sands?
2: Uh, Specifically for the tar sands, I mean, in the immediate future, it shores up a bunch of companies that were nearing the verge of bankruptcy. The crisis in the Ukraine uh, is generative of tremendous profits in the fossil fuel industry. So oil prices are back over $100. Canadian oil prices are still a bit discounted from that, but still, I think, $13 or $15 below West Texas prices. So almost getting up to $100. They're well above levels needed for profitability. So you're going to see huge profits uh, in the immediate term. That won't necessarily generate any kind of long-term changes in the trajectory. However, the Canadian government has been lobbying uh, the U.S. government to restore the keystone project in the context of Ukraine. Biden's uh, administration has proven unreceptive to that call. So I think because of the time lapse, the tar sands don't offer a solution to the immediate kind of oil crisis, and what I think the tar, uh, the crisis may be generating is a push towards further push towards decarbonization in terms of energy supply as people become aware of certain geopolitical risks associated with it, which might actually exacerbate the long-term tensions for Canadian oil sands production. And we can see this in some of the pipelines. So the one pipeline that's about to be built called Trans Mountain had to be nationalized because the company wasn't seeing profit margins because of all of the blockades slowing down its construction timeline. They nationalized that project for the Canadian government. The Canadian federal auditor just noted that it is now going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars. So, And that report was only a few weeks ago. So the context of Ukraine is not saving this industry or its infrastructure.
1: Wow. Um, that uh, sounds like a bit of good, good news. Um, yeah. Yes, in the context of decarbonization, I want to bring, about, bring us back to the question of automation as well. What do you think the interaction between decarbonization and automation are?
2: I think that's a good question. And I'm not sure I have the entirety of the answer for that. I think there is this kind of technological push towards an alternative kind of economy. Some of the big figures in renewable or inter- electric car development are also big figures in, in the push towards automation. Um, So vehicles, for instance, being one of these kind of key areas where you see this kind of intersection of new kind of energy sources uh, for consumption with a push towards automating and revising uh, our economy. I think that one of the things that's most interesting and terrifying to think about is the way that those things all come together. So to pick one uh, kind of figurehead, like Elon Musk is... awful as a person and kind of odious politically, but he showcases to us the ways in which all of this kind of comes together in what ostensibly could be a kind of greening of capitalism, but that only intensifies its regimes of exploitation. Elon Musk may be many things, but he's not pro worker. And while he looks for us to have these automated and high tech futures,
0: it's not going to be an inclusive one for the vast majority of, of folks. Following on from that, if we think about what the kind of trade union or labor union responds to these quite tremendous changes, how do they respond to these kinds of changes? And what is specifically, what is the worker power in this sector? You get a sense by reading your paper that these are actually quite conservative unions, potentially in a fraud relationship with indigenous movements and struggles in a fraud relationship with environmentalist movements and potentially also kind of organized left wing politics. Could you explain in more detail what the kind of landscape of the unions looks like? Are they conservative? Are they what are they like? And how much power do they actually have?
2: I think you are exactly right that these are relatively conservative factions within the labor movement. This is not to say that they're docile or disempowered unions. I think that they have historically done well by their members, but uh, often at the cost of, of the environment and often advancing their members' interests in competition with other constituencies. Um, So that, you know, the kind of tensions over things like indigenization of the workforce have been prominent in construction unions. Susan Mills has done some great work sort of exploring the ways in which unions have used training designations to try to control and limit the extent to which non-white workers, indigenous workers are entering into the unionized workforce. So... I think they are conservative unions that have worked historically to really better conditions for their members, but haven't necessarily been advancing a broader social movement unionism uh, and have been wed to, to some extent to the industries that they work in and have cultivated a kind of identification with the companies that they work with. And I think for a kind of larger transformative politics, I personally would suggest that uh, a constituency that has not traditionally been the center of left organizing might be more important for us to think about, and that's the unemployed. That increasingly labor has been tied Uh, to this kind of industrial system. And I think various people have sort of suggested, oh, we need to organize the workers to make a transition. But I think it's equally important to look at those that have been excluded from the system and, and recognizing that there are far more people that are not served by these developments than are served can help us to build a kind of politics
0: for change. Is there a use of migrant labor in the Tarzan's economy? I was thinking about how in other countries, other contexts, in kind of natural resource exploitation, if we think about mining projects, for example, there's influx of Chinese capital. And with that, a lot of the time certain kind of requirements around the use of Chinese labor as well in those on those sites. Is there any migrant labor either kind of from China or other kind of more precarious migrant labor that's being used in the sector at all? I think if you
2: look at the tar sands and look at it a little bit more broadly, social reproduction in the tar sands economy is highly reliant on migrant labor. So the service sectors in the provincial north that are being developed to serve the economy have a high amount of migrant labor working in those kind of fields. So if you go to Fort McMurray, which is the industrial heart of the tar sands, you'll see like a large Somali population. The people that are doing much of the kind of support work to have lives on those peripheries are migrant workers and i think they're definitely part of that dynamic Uh, in terms of chinese the chinese investors have largely divested of the tar sands now so there's less chinese involvement but certainly a a large number of migrant workers coming in from other kind of global peripheries into canada particularly in those socially reproductive roles
0: I'd assume that those workers, precarious, potentially in their, some of them in their legal status, but certainly in their economic status, how does that then play out in terms of the union politics of it and also the kind of conservativeness of, of Alberta as a province? Because you would think that those workers would be overwhelmingly sympathetic to left-wing politics, to increased redistribution and so on. But are they kind of in tension in terms of how does that kind of play out? Is there a tension there or is there affinity in I mean, I think there's huge tensions. I think the rates of unionization
2: are lower in service sectors. I think the unions in service sectors are more politically progressive by a large measure. And I think you're, you're right. Part of that comes from this kind of different position that more precarious workers face. One of the limitations that they face is the kind of terms of migrant work in Canada. These programs that that bring in migrant workers are set up with a recipient hosts. So your ability to organize and risk being fired also risk the possibility of the rescind- rescinding of your visa. So there's a way that legally the Canadian government has constituted this migrant service sector labor force as incredibly, not just precarious in terms of employment cycles, but legally precarious in their viability and in, in being able to be within this, the country. And I think this is not an accident. Uh, it has been a product of corporate lobbying and design, but I, I think I think it showcases the need to have a kind of broader vision politically that integrates our analysis of questions of nationality into understandings of the politics of labor and the politics of, of production and social reproduction in these spaces.
1: Um, I'm going to ask you a slightly different question and um, apologies if this is a bit liberal. I, uh, I'm, um, you know, this is for the. I'm going to just find an excuse to say it's for the uh, small proportion of non-Marxist listeners of the Historical Materialism podcast. But sort of, what effects do you think capital shifts from uh, from carbon investments to renewable investments might have in sort of possibly challenging capitalism?
2: What they offer is the possibility of transformation within capitalism. And if there is a a critique, and of course there is a critique I would make of some of the people that have written about fossil capitalism, is I think at times it overstates the extent to which capitalism depends on fossil fuels. Contemporary capitalism and the historic evolution of capitalism obviously depends on fossil fuels, but I think capitalism has proven it to be an incredibly dynamic system. And I believe the great tragedy is not that capitalism depends on fossil fuels, but that capitalism does not, and that it could resolve this contradiction and decarbonize. And we don't have a simple solution that, oh, the running out of fossil fuels will mean capitalism is over and we finally have a just society. I think that capitalism, it may be a more violent world with more environmental crises, but I don't think we can assume that capitalism will simply fall of its own accord based on its environmental contradictions. I think it will find new ways to internalize dynamics to sustain itself absent a movement that demands change. I don't think it's inexorable that we just end up in some horrible future dystopian world where capitalism has internalized this in a new horrible way. But I think the difference between that world and a world of more just sustainability is a question
0: of political and social struggle. Thinking about how the sites of power might help overcome or attempt to overcome those the crisis in fossil capitalism and, and resolve them internally you know, to maintain capitalism, I was curious about where you think precisely the power resides in the, well, in the Tarzan's economy, in the hydrocarbon economy more generally. You argue, and, and this is a quote, you say, the geography of hydrocarbon development is structured less by state policy. Than the relations of global capital. But at the same time, one also gets the impression that the provincial government of Alberta, the corporations, which are, it seems, pretty much all kind of domestic Canadian corporations, that there's also lots of power within the provincial government and these corporations to the extent that we can kind of isolate them from the global system of capitalism. But where would you say the kind of power resides within the Tarzan's economy and and fossil capitalism more generally here? I think that power resides
2: in most principally in relations of capital, broadly speaking, and the questions of production, dispossession, Mm -hmm. social reproduction. Um, which all interlace and we've talked about here, that these kind of moments where we can contest the dynamics of what is unfolding are where the power lies. I don't think the provincial government and the state has the capacity absent demands and mobilizations in these spheres to control it. I also think that there's been a lot of false promises of what you might call Canadian fossil liberalism in the sense that suggestions the Trudeau government in Canada had originally proposed that building a new pipeline would create the kind of economic flourishing that will create the revenues for the state to transition to a green economy. And now it turns out that that they've lost a ton of money building a pipeline that is just another state subsidy for fossil fuel development. So I think the power lies in really demanding a kind of different economy and uh, articulating a class politics that can speak to the needs of the majority.
1: So, within that context of a class politics, how do you see your argument sort of vis a vis Matt Huber or Troy Vitis, who argued for seeing climate catastrophe as class war?
2: I mean, I see my argument broadly in congruence, at least with Huber's. I haven't uh, read Vitis's material, uh, admittedly. But I, I definitely see that class conflict is at the core. And one of the failures of the environmental movement is its professional managerial orientation. It's remained a kind of a liberal elite domain that doesn't speak to people outside a relatively privileged managerial, technocratic political alignment. And I think if we're going to transform climate politics into a mass politics, it has to become something that speaks to a larger majority
0: and how do you then overcome potentially this challenge of the fact that and this is probably particular to the Canadian context but the kind of provincial the provincial government system so the the idea that it seems that the government of Alberta does hold some power has some almost has a kind of veto power over st- some aspects of the development of this industry and, and the and the investments within it and so on. But at the same time, it also affects the other provinces. And it's also kind of connected to the fact that a lot of these bitumen is, if I understood correctly, is refined in the United States. How do you draw that kind of picture there? You, you're advocating for a move from, in a sense, focusing excessively on consumption to focusing on production. Well, the production is primarily in Alberta. Does that mean that that's kind of the, the site of struggle? Is that where the real battle is going to be is that where the war will be the class war or otherwise will be won or lost is it in alberta or is it is it in the federal government is it actually in the united states somewhere else kind of where do you envisage this kind of war or this struggle to be fought? i think all so i i think that the production system
2: needs to be understood as extensive. The refineries obviously are part of the same production system as the pipelines. So I think the struggles of the pipelines are part of the production system and part of uh, the struggle. But I feel like this needs to be understood in economic terms, in part because juxtaposing the environment versus the economy is not a winning proposition for many people. There's large populations that are continue to be concerned about their own economic circumstances and having a politics that doesn't speak to a kind of class politics and only sort of speaks to a kind of liberal environmentalism doesn't offer a solution That will appeal to the many. That said, I think part of it is is actually articulating forms of green economy beyond the fossil fuel economy that pose alternatives. I think when you look at the Green New Deal, it's not simply fighting within those industries, it's fighting to build other kinds of green economy, and ideally ones that are not dominated by capital relations. But I think that this kind of transition, it goes beyond one industry. And in part, we have an industry now that's dislocating its own workforce. And as it does, it's losing its constituents. And I think there's an invitation there to begin to talk to people about transitioning to something else. And I think that conversation about transition needs to be really central and key. And I think the politics lie in part in having political interventions around tri- just transitions, not simply in regulating the single industry. There's a need to have a, a kind of larger understanding.
1: Lots of places in the world, uh, including Britain, uh, aren't major producers of oil. And I guess England isn't, you know, there's bits of oil in Scotland. But, you know, the, here, the biggest campaign was Extinction Rebellion. Um, theirs were primarily disruption at points of consumption. And, and what you're arguing is, you know, you're not arguing largely, you know, kind of against having that, those kinds of actions. You're saying, hey, we got to move beyond that and have a larger, a, kind of broader um, constituency that we're building towards. Do you think that those forms of actions actually end up, and the argument you're saying is like, have a certain kind of elitism, etc. Do you think that, that those those kind of politics alienate certain kinds of you know, working class composition that might support it because they're disrupting not necessarily the oil producers getting oil to parts of the country, but actually like consumers who are like getting to work or whatever? Um, would you be critical of that? Or would you say that it has to build on that? I, I mean, I think some of Extinction Rebellion's
2: actions I would be incredibly critical of. Their kind of focus on disruption without paying attention to like what they're disrupting, I think is alienating. I I have no understanding of why they've had actions that disrupt public transit. It seems counterintuitive in terms of like, I think public transit's what we should be fighting for, but I think it's been motivated by this kind of generalized conception that we're fighting, that they're fighting to disrupt the status quo without paying any attention to the questions uh, of livelihood for folks, without paying attention to uh, what's part of the fossil economy and what might be an alternative to it, and particularly a public alternative to it. I mean, those actions in in particular, I would think were wrongheaded. That said, I, I will praise that I think that they are dedicated enough to think that there's a need to take action, and we do need to take action, But I think that we need to have a much better strategic compass. Part of that, I think, is organizing in ways that resonate with people who have real concerns about their livelihoods, starting from questions of livelihood will bring us to a politics that are much more attractive to the working class than starting with questions about like ethical consumption.
0: What do you think about the idea of kind of nationalizing the Tarzan, the entirety of the tar sand, insofar as it's actually located in physical spaces and so on, but nationalizing the Tarzan economy? So to move from a kind of rentier economy to actually one in which it's the state that basically collects the revenue as opposed to the rent would you say that's a total impossibility or is it a dead end i mean we've seen in certain places in the global south granted not in the global north but of that kind of nationalization of even of certain highly destructive industries and so on is that a possibility if not why not <laughs>
2: it has been so we just we just nationalized a pipeline but it was unprofitable and i think that it's possible to nationalize the industry i'm actually wary that they might nationalize the industry because it proves un unpo- unprofitable and continue developing it uh, under the name of national development i i would say that we need to build public industries that offer livelihoods to people beyond these industries. And if you look at a country like Venezuela, which is very different in so many ways, but there are real horizons to what's politically possible through only focusing on a kind of politics of public development of extractive industries. Um, you end up wed- wedded to it still in various ways. This, I think, it maybe derails us from the real conversation about transitions. That's All of that said, I think public ownership is probably better than private ownership. But I think we need to think about what industries we have dominating the economy, as well as
0: questions of ownership. I was wondering if you could help solve the mystery which, from this side of the Atlantic at least is that Canada seems to have this incredibly rose-tinted, nice, fluffy image of being uh, you know, a very pleasant place. In spite of, or maybe predicated on a kind of obliviousness to the horrors of Indigenous dispossession and, and the tar sands economy. But do you have any ideas of why that is? I've
2: been living, my institutional position is in Florida. So I've been living in Florida and kind of experiencing this dual identity as as someone, I'm not American, but I have a green card. And I've been immersed in that political circumstances, as well as being Canadian and having done research in Canada for a long time. One of the reflections that I, I would say is Canada is a more liberal country, but it's helped me in the contrast to understand a little bit more what liberalism is and does and offers. And I think it's not in a less extractive country, but it's one with a kind of patina covering over those base exploitive relationships. There is more of a kind of Canadian rose tint or niceness that's offered. There are things that happen in Canada that I don't see in the States. So it is, as we're talking, Canada Day, our our national kind of celebration of, of ourselves. In the kind of most Canadian form last year, Canadians marked Canada Day by a series of marches reflecting reflecting on and and kind of admitting the kind of wrongful history of violence to Indigenous people. That was the way that across the nation it was marked. And it continues to be this kind of genuflection that, that is this distinctly Canadian mode. So I think that's different, but it's different as a kind of cover. It makes things seem nicer. But ultimately, the kind of offers for inclusion are inclusion within a particular form of liberal capitalist development that reconstructs all the same kind of inequalities, the dispossessions. So if you look at Canadian history, the Canadian government didn't wage wars of extermination against Indigenous peoples, but it still dispossessed them. So in the end effect, it's maybe less violent or has less blazing violence, but has a lot of more of the kind of slow violence that come under the cover of of liberalism.
0: If we look at the particular political juncture we're in now, or the particular political moment now, runaway inflation, the cost of living crisis, this sense in which people's livelihoods are becoming increasingly precarious and uncertain and there's a real struggle to pay skyrocketing rents and to put food on the table and in a country like canada where there is and of course large a large part of this is also driven by the increase in in commodity prices and which again is in part caused by an increase in in uh prices of fossil fuels but for canada obviously as a producer of fossil fuels as well it must be a little bit more complicated because there must also be an increase in state revenues through rent seeking of these economies so how does that kind of play out in a country that's also a carbon producer not just a a carbon consumer it's different in a certain uh canada's been slow
2: in instituting gas tax rebates slower than some other jurisdictions i'm not entirely certain why that is it may be uh that the There is this kind of confluence uh, of kind of circumstances. It really has buoyed the Alberta economy in in terms of employment rate is, is finally coming down. Or unemployment rate is finally coming down, but at the same time, the cost of living crisis is real here, real as everywhere else. And it turns out that the even when they're Canadian corporations, when they rake in giant profits, they rake in giant profits and don't necessarily like pass on the savings to to us as a, a major producer of oil. And I think this is partly shows how globalized the economy is, but also globalized around a particular construction of the commodity in relation to capital that is indifferent to the needs of the
0: average consumer. So in Britain, for example, there has been, in, in the context of that cost of living crisis and a larger crisis, possibly, there have been encouraging signs of labor, militancy and union organizing. There have been a series of strikes in multiple sectors of the economy in Britain and just recently, previously quite poorly organized workers in the communication sector who are actually very atomized and working from home. A lot of them also have just overwhelmingly voted uh, in favor of strike action. So there is a sense in Britain that there is a, a kind of renewal of labor militancy potentially. Is there any sign of that in Canada as well? Or if not, why not?
2: There are definitely threads of people trying to push, but I don't see the same extent. I would say in the Canadian context, and this goes back to originally why I wrote this paper, the people that are most mobilized around a kind of anger, a consumer anger, or a cost of living anger, tend to be these xenophobic arch-conservatives who are mobilizing a politics that of uh, blame and hate, offering what are ultimately false solutions to the crisis. And I think that this is part of a failing on the left to be able to speak to these kind of political circumstances. I think that we have let a large constituency that's struggling become a kind of bastion for right and increasingly far right organizing. In that context, it's sort of left politics split or bifurcated between a kind of tempest liberalism and the threat of a rising new right. And the liberals are sort of using that as a kind of stick, I I think, politically to sort of say, well, we just have to balance the middle course. And it seems a, a, a a great tragedy in North America that we're not having a deeper conversation or more militant action. I think it's inspiring to hear about the actions that are happening in Britain. Now, as an anti-imperialist, I don't think that we should fall Britain on all things, but certainly, you know, that kind of militancy is is one that we could learn from.
1: Um, thank you very much, Tyler, for a very uh, incisive discussion on this auspicious Canada Day. And uh, I'd encourage everyone to download the paper. We've made it open access. And, and check out uh, other episodes that we've done. Imperialism on political Marxism and like and subscribe. The podcast is just a quick reminder that the HM conference in London is November 10th to 13th. Send in a paper or just join us. But also please uh, follow us on Twitter at Hismat, Facebook, uh, and join our, our our email list at historicalmaterialism um, at soas.ac.uk. But you can also write that if you want to um, subscribe to the HM Journal and get a 25% discount. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having me.